Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Celebration Studies, a new special series from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. Today I'm talking to Dr. Francis Henry and Dr. Dwayne Plaza, the editors of Carnival is Woman, Feminism and Performance in Caribbean Mass, which was published by the University Press of Mississippi in 2019. Through a feminist perspective, Carnival is Woman examines the presence of women in contemporary Carnival by demonstrating not only their strength in numbers, but also the ways in which they participate in the festivities. Exploring different themes and time periods, the authors in this volume explain the power of women in the evolution of Carnival Mass in Trinidad and in the Caribbean diaspora. Dr. Francis Henry is Professor Emerita at York University and a member of the Royal Society of Canada. She specializes in Caribbean studies and is the author of The Equity Myth, Racialization and Indigeneity at Canadian Universities, and He Had the Power, Panazir the Orisha King of Trinidad. Dr. Duane Plaza is professor of sociology at Oregon State University. He also specializes in Caribbean studies. He's the co-author of Returning to the Source, the final stage of the Caribbean migration circuit. Francis Henry, Duane Plaza, welcome to New Books and Celebration Studies. Yes. Thank you, Zola. Before we start talking about Carnival is Woman, could you tell us a bit about yourselves, how and why did you decide to collaborate, and how did this collection come about? Well, I suppose I had better start that because I think I was the the initiator of this. Uh, Duane joined a little bit later. And there is a story involved in that as well, of course. But uh, what happened, and let me begin by saying that the credit uh, to me is not entirely accurate. I did begin my professional life in Caribbean studies, but I then went into other directions. And uh, I've always kept my hand in, so to speak, in Caribbean studies, but it is not uh, and hasn't been for quite a long time my primary professional interest. Um, In any case, this project came about because my husband, uh, Professor Jeff Henry, is a, a Caribbeanist to a certain extent, but more than that, He is uh, born and raised in Trinidad, and he was a carnival player um, in his youth. And because he was a a very magnificent uh, movement and dance person, he became quite famous as a carnivalist in in Trinidad. Um, 
as life would have it, uh, and he became a professor, uh, he decided to go back to some of his roots and study the carnival as it was in his earlier days, very different to what it is today. Um, and he was invited by a um, colleague uh, to give a presentation on a book he wrote on the traditional early carnival uh, at a meeting of the Caribbean Studies Association uh, in New Orleans, I think it was, in 2015, I believe. It could have been earlier even. In any event, uh, he is um, quite elderly and, and is not very well, and he declined that invitation. And I thought, well, this is a very good opportunity uh, to showcase his work uh, and a little bit of my own. And I, I took up the challenge instead, and I gave the presentation at the conference. In the meantime, several people had joined the panel discussion, and it turned out to be an extremely popular panel at this meeting. And we were approached by a um, member uh, of, of publications, that is University of Mississippi Press, who were there present and saw a large crowd, lots of questions, and obviously they thought this would make an interesting manuscript for their press. And that's essentially, after a lot of um, toing and froing, that's how um, this book got organized. Uh, I then took charge, so to speak, and asked my panel colleagues to join in the book endeavor. And as it turned out, in the end, none of them are really represented in this book. Um, things happened, and I needn't go into detail on that. But it looked as if the um, attempt to create a manuscript was dead until I thought, well, let me contact my ex-student and friend and colleague, Dwayne Plaza. And he took up the challenge of getting new contributors onto the subject of women in carnival. And uh, his efforts were extremely successful in getting a lot of the younger scholars who are working on women's issues and carnival to participate in the manuscript, which eventually, after again, a lot of effort um, became the book that you see in front of you. And I should add, also say that Duane was the person who, who searched the internet and came up with this spectacular artist, a woman a painter who lives in Trinidad, who supplied uh, this amazing cover to this book. So that's a long story. But there it is. Oh, great. I was about to ask you about the cover. It's really beautiful. What's the name of the, uh, of the artist? Dwayne, do you remember uh, her name? Okay. I'm going to look it up here in the book because yeah. I cannot remember her name, <laughs> uh, which is a real shame. Uh, no, I, I, oh, I, it's, I, I got it. It's Cynthia McLean. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 
So you both signed the book's introduction, which provides an overview of the history of carnival in the Caribbean and also a brief introduction to carnival theory, which I found very helpful to anybody like me who is writing about carnival as well. Um, so let's start with some basic definition in case our listeners are not familiar with the concept. What is carnival? So carnival really has a history that goes back into the uh, colonial period, um, and it goes back to Europe. Uh, the carnival was the pre-Lenten uh, celebration of um, Catholic, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, transition between the birth and death of Jesus Christ. Sorry, between the death of Jesus Christ, and so carnival is the idea of extreme. The, the idea of before you go into mourning or before you go into sacrifice, which is Lent, after Lent, you go into sacrifice and you don't indulge in any kind of extremes. So the Europeans brought that to uh, the Caribbean as part of their ball ballroom celebrations. Um, and that essentially mes uh, meshed with the African traditions of dance and, and uh, celebration. And so as the slaves were essentially watching the Europeans celebrating their carnival in their ballroom settings. Uh, what became of that eventually was a um, African tradition of celebrating carnival on top of the sort of Christian um, background to carnival. And so eventually what we see today has its genesis or its DNA in that European uh, background. Professor Henry, do you want to add any more? Um, well, I think the only thing to add really is that uh, what the enslaved did as they watched their masters uh, doing stiff dances and behaving in, in awkward ways was to mock them, to imitate them and mock them. And it is from their own uh, sense of movement and um, that they, they got the idea of, of doing it themselves, but in, in, a, in a staged performance kind of way. And that's the tradition that created the old style of carnival, which is no longer done in the Caribbean, uh, and about which um, my husband's book is, is, is written. So that's the only thing I would add to that. Okay. And were there rigid gender roles in early Caribbean carnival? Uh, how did women begin to participate and did race, status, or class determine their access and the roles they could play in the festivities? So I'll start and, I'll, and then I'll invite Professor Henry to, to complete. Um, so in the early period of carnival, uh, we clearly have some indications that women were... Um, engendered very specific gendered roles around what they could and what they couldn't do. So women have always been in carnival. Let's, let's start with that to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, but these very gendered rigid patterns of what women could do on the streets uh, in public were very much um, um, uh, regulated by the, the so-called so social norms of the time. And so for let's, let's compare white women to women of color, uh, black women. So for white women in colonial society, there was clearly certain ideals and certain roles that they could play, and they were oftentimes um, peripheral 
to, to men. For African women, though, uh, from what we've read in the historical documentation, they clearly were there um, in those same spaces, but typically with men um, participating as what we often refer to as chat wells. These are people who actually chant and sing. They um, would also don costumes. There was certainly um, a, a, a role for women in Carnival. But what you're going to find in our book is that that role has diametrically changed. So men were really in control of the streets, and men have always been in control of streets, historically speaking, and even contemporarily. And that's about safety and so forth for women's uh, personal self. But in the early period of time, women's role on the street was really, black women that is, was really interacting with men uh, in ways that uh, is not like today, which is the dominance on the streets now is women. So I'll ask Professor Henry if she wants to add anything to that. No, that's about right. Okay. I mean, yeah, I think the point, the important point is that women always had a role um, in, 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 in carnival and women also played carnival. That is, mm -hmm. you know, they took to the streets and, and so on, but nothing like what has happened in the last 20 or so years. Mm -hmm. I am uh, fascinated by, uh, and I'm not sure if I'm, I'm pronouncing it correctly, the Jamets. Several yeah. authors mentioned them. Yeah. Could you introduce them to our audience and tell us uh, about their contribution to the celebration? First, Andrew, why don't you go first this time and I'll go second. No, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> you know more about Jamets than I do. <laughs> okay. So it was often considered as a pejorative, negative uh, label attached to women to be Janets. And um, essentially, women of the time, uh, again, circa early uh, 19th century, late early 20th century kind of period, um, black women actually actually embraced that particular role. Remember now, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a culture where white women are clearly at the pinnacle, the top Black women, no matter what they did, they could try and, you know, change their appearance, try to, you know, be, uh, uh, try to have highest level of morality in society, but they always would be tarred with that brush of, you're not as good as a white female. So in those kinds of conditions, you often find then that people, some people will then embrace the role, okay, if I can't be the best or considered as the best, I will occupy this next status, which is freedom. And so for the Gemet, I would argue, it was a freeing position for women. They could actually throw away those sort of um, Victorian ideals of, of white femininity and then embrace an, a notion for the time on the streets, that is, that they could actually do whatever they wanted. They could use their body. They could, you know, move in, as Professor Henry said, move in provocative ways, whereas the white female at the time, could only be very rigid. And so the Jamets then became this, uh, this let's call it a, a sort of a, a social movement within the society itself, that by acting bad, some women could actually find a space for themselves of respect in that society, because it was independence. It was, you didn't have to follow the conventional um, Judeo-Christian slash of Victorian notions of white femininity, uh, Jamet could actually be um, somebody who is manifesting her agency in um, on the streets. 
Mm-hmm. Well, this brings me to something that you mentioned here, that uh, one of the most interesting developments in the recent study of women in Trinidad Carnival are these two competing interpretations, right? While one group critiques this objectification of women, another group talks about women reclaiming agency and using their body as vehicles to challenge society's patriarchal structures. Could you tell us about these two camps and if if you will tell me where does each of the the author or the editors uh, the two of you stand in this debate? Oh that's a very interesting question. Um I um I I have to confess that I have not always been a fan of the uh, newly empowered female figure in the, especially in the Trinidad Carnival. Um, being older myself, I, my first experience with Trinidad Carnival was when it was still more or less in its traditional older period. And you saw a lot of, of women who played carnival, but they played in historical bands and they were dressed up as queens or they, they played in sort of mystical bands and they played gods and goddesses. And uh, in other words, very powerful figures. Uh, they did not play themselves um, as such. And so I sort of grew up, in a sense, with the image of, of women dressed in, in spectacular, beautiful, historical, often enough, costumes. Um, and then it began to change. And I'm not sure that I really uh, enjoyed that change um, because it, um, it became a, a political change. And... While I identify very strongly with the, you know, the empowerment of women in all ways, I found I had a, a little bit of difficulty in accepting the notion that this is what carnival now is. And um, I, I had to slowly come around and realize that this period of carnival history which is in fact um, uh, looks entirely as though it were the province of women, is indeed empowerment. And it is indeed something that is good for women uh, in, in, in the society. So I can say that, well, I, I now accept or have learned to accept that this is the way it has changed and that it has changed to, um, to project the improvement and help in the improvement uh, of the status of women in, in the society. I'll add to that a little bit um, and just think through the idea of the f- sort of fifth wave of feminism. The fifth wave of feminism really is about women saying to the world, you no longer control my body. I control it. I will have agency over how I show it, when I show it, how I show it. And I'm also proud of my body, meaning that I don't have to only adhere to one archetype of a body type. 
And so for for many women who participate in carnival in 2020 or 2019 or more recently, um, that idea of the bikini, the beads, and the, the mass really becomes a stage for them to manifest their agency. And this is one of the things we argue in the book. This is where women now come to control the streets through their dress. So I go back. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a masquerader that goes back. I still play mass even today, and I go back almost 30 years of playing mass almost every year, either in Trinidad or in Toronto. And as I've also watched the trend that Professor Henry refers to, um, I've also been a person who looked at it and said initially, wow, this is really, um, women are objectifying themselves and they're falling into this male gaze and so forth and so on. And then I started to have to reanalyze that same um, bias that I have had and, and really start to analyze it through the lens of when I see all shapes, all sizes, all races, all um, uh, physical appearances of women adopting uh, a, a costume that they may receive from a mass maker or, or a band leader and decide, actually, they're going to modify it even more themselves. And they're going to either cut it up even smaller or they're going to do certain things to it to, to uh, accentuate certain body uh, assets they feel they have. So to me, that takes it to the next level. That takes it to the level of realizing that these women aren't doing this for men. Far from it. They're doing it for themselves. They're, they're, they are actually in those costumes because on that day, on, or on those two days, they get to feel as beautiful or as um, attractive as they want to feel uh, in those spaces of carnival where women come to control the streets at that moment uh, in time. So that's, you know, that's kind of the sort of the, the, the evolution, one might say, of how I've, both of us uh, have come to sort of see the space. Um, and so one of the things you actually don't see in many of the carnival spaces, and this is something that is hard for people to actually put their head around, um, is that you don't have strangers, meaning people they don't, that women don't know, come up to these women and, and try to be violent towards them or try to control them in, in any sort of way during the masquerade. Now that might happen before the, the, the masquerade in our society. It might happen you know, after the masquerade. But during mass time, meaning during the carnival jump up, I have rarely seen a situation where a woman is not actually in control of her own body and who just, she decides to dance with whoever she wants to. And other men may try but within a matter of a few seconds of a uh, of a body gesture or a, or some kind of verbal language taking place, man back right down and walk away. It's not as if it's a one-sided dominating relationship that may exist previous to the mass and after the mass, but not during the mass. Mm -hmm. This brings me uh, to my question about the Dwayne, uh, the title of your your first piece here. And you talk about women and the de-Africanization of Trinidad. What do you mean by de-Africanization here? Sure. Uh, referencing back to Professor Henry's um, uh, idea of sentiment that the early mass was about a historical celebration of themes. So as she said, it could be themes of goddesses or gods. It could be mythical Greek uh, themes. Some of the themes also were 
uh, African themes. So if you look at some of the early bands in the, uh, you know, uh, coming out of the historical um, narrative, you'd start to see that the early carnival bands actually would celebrate Africa in, in a way that they would think back in their imaginations or even reference to, you know, uh, uh, magazines like National Geographic, for example, and have an understanding of what Africa is like in terms of it, it is a space and a location that they can actually have a memory of. And so for African Caribbean people then, celebrating Africa in a mass, in a carnival costume meant trying to replicate the costume itself. In other words, trying to replicate what the, um, let's say the, the geography would have looked like, the birds would have looked like. Fast forward now to the present. Many bands will actually um, invoke the, the notion of an African theme to their band. But when you look at the masqueraders and what their costumes look like in the band, Yes, they may have the title of Serengeti, or they may have the title of um, some sort of animal or whatever. But when you look at the costumes, unfortunately, it's all become beads, feathers, mm -hmm. and bikinis. And so the idea of uh, a mass or a carnival section actually portraying uh, an African theme is very rare in terms of what used to exist in the mass when it used to be in, uh, mass mass band leaders trying to replicate a sort of a almost like think about it like almost like a movie. They're trying to portray a, a movie or a play of people coming across the stage or portraying a certain uh, theme. Whereas today, it's more of use the theme, but it's not actually has anything to do with Africa or um, mythical gods anymore. It's more just and I often refer to this now. You're now playing a color in a band. You're playing the red section, the gold section, the orange section. The section might have a name to it, and it may have a theme to the band, but there's not really much historicization anymore. Mm -hmm. So, but Francis, your piece brings us back to that 19th century, early 20th century, old mass female characters, right? Uh, could you tell us a little bit about them? And in the title, you, you call this Stories of Resistance and Oppressions. Can you tell us about this oppression that you re, you're referring to and how did they represent resistance? Well, yes. Um, when we looked at some of the early female characters, um, there were two that stand out. And one was known as Baby Doll and the other as Dame or Dame Lorraine. Now, Baby Doll was a young woman uh, who carried um, a, um, a doll, a white doll in her arms, which she declared was her baby. And uh, she roams the streets during the carnival period and um, sort of, uh, entreats men for money, claiming that each man that she sort of attacks in this manner is the father of her child or could be the father of her child. So um, it is, it's a very striking characterization. But what it tells you is, first of all, that women were 
uh, in earlier times, uh, taken advantage of by men, uh, that the women were very often women of color and the men were white uh, and the sort of masters and, and later simply the, the colonial um, oppressors of the population, so to speak. Uh, so that, that role really is an enactment of the oppression of women because this poor young woman and her baby are left adrift with no means of support after presumably she's been raped uh, or perhaps in some versions seduced, but I think more likely raped by some man who was her, um, her in many ways, uh, more powerful than she was. So clearly doing this as a mockery, as a really a mockery for Carnival, suggested that uh, it is a form of resistance because it tells the story of the oppression of women. Now, Dame Lorraine is, is somewhat different. She is the actual descendant of a very early carnival figure. Um, and, and she's the sort of uh, mockery of European women uh, dressed up in finery. Dame Lorraine was always a big woman, a big uh, weighty woman in carnival. And she was dressed in very, very fine clothes, wearing a hat and, and carrying a fan usually. And she was an, an imitation of the early colonial women, the wives of the plantation heads and so on. Uh, except that when she became a carnival old mass character, and even up to today, to today, because she still occasionally makes an appearance, she is a very large woman. But the, the size is done artificially through pillows and a variety of other, you know, sort of paddings. And so she has very exaggerated sexual prominent organs. Um, so again, that is a, a, a mockery of an early female. Uh, a Europeanish female, uh, but built to look in, in, in very savage, mocking ways um, as this Dame Lorraine figure. Uh, <clears throat> interestingly enough, this character um, is still around today, uh, or I think so, Dwayne. I haven't been there in a long time. But uh, even in my later years in Trinidad, you could see her in, 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 in nightclub acts and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so that she was still, you know, quite, quite a figure. And uh, very often men used to play her and all dolled up with pillows and padding and, and so on. Uh, so uh, we thought that these two figures really are symbolic of a resisting oppression. Okay. So I'll just so, also add to that uh, by just suggesting that um, these characters do still come out on Juve morning uh, from various parts of Trinidad. Uh, they're not, um, you know, uh, in sections. These are actually individual people who decide they're going to come out 
on Julia, Julia morning, just to contextualize this for the, for the listeners, is the time before Carnival even starts. So Carnival is typically Monday and Tuesday um, in, in, in light of uh, before Lent. But the breaking of dawn on the Monday morning, so this is Sunday evening into Monday morning, um, Trinidadians will celebrate the juve, the, the, the playing on the streets. And in that playing on the streets, uh, this is the time when historically uh, bands will come out as juve bands, pre-carnival bands, and um, some of them will be led by many of these characters Professor Henry is talking about um, as individuals playing these characters in certain types of bands. Right? They're not. It's not a predominance, but there's clearly there, there's still the remnants of these individuals who will come out and play these characters, um, and they will they will um, act out the character on the streets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then so when chapter three takes us back right in time and contextualizes the Cambulay riots and highlighting the role of women in these events, what is Cambulay and how are the Jamets connected to the story? So I'll just start off again, uh, and Professor Henry, you can um, please come in. The Cambulay was c- considered as the uh, the time when the canes were burnt. So the burning of the cane meant uh, you had cane season, and you'd have three seasons for the year for cane grow- sugar cane growing in the in, in Trinidad or in the Caribbean in general. And then before you actually cut the cane uh, to actually then squeeze the juice out of it to create the um, the raw sugar that would eventually be produced uh, in England, you'd send it in barrels. Before you even did that, you'd have to burn the cane. And so this particular event, um, which had the in about the 1870s or so, where you had um, uh, you know women coming out, uh, and these were Jamet women. Again, let's refer to them as provocative women, women who are taking back control of the, their selves, their bodies, their street, the street itself. And some of these Jamet women at this particular time period um, were actually women who may have been considered as um, um, uh, sex workers. They may have been considered as women who were um, of uh, not having reputable character. And again, I, will, I, I would like to put all that in quotation marks because it's oftentimes these are social constructs of how we actually classify and codify women. Um, but they eventually uh, organized themselves into um, 1881, a sort of a riot in a sense. They led a riot, I should say, um, to protest some of the historical um, injustices that women were feeling at the time. And so the Jamets themselves represented that class of women who were, again, revolting against, when I say revolting, I mean protesting, having agency over those Victorian ideals of womanhood. And uh, as I understand it, they then have this um, this sort of a semi-riot uh, um, in, in Trinidad in 1881. Yeah. Professor, do you want to add anything to that? No, that sounds sufficient. <laughs> okay. So then uh, the following chapter discusses the JC's Carnival Queen. Uh, could you tell us a bit about this competition and what does the author mean here by pretty mass aesthetics? Well, I think uh, just to begin, uh, the JC's. Um, uh, were th- that competition 
really uh, sort of brought the Europeanization attempts uh, in the Caribbean and, and particularly in, in, in Trinidad. Uh, it reinforced the, the European and white standards of European femininity. And in other words, it provided the model of what was considered beautiful. Uh, and certainly during colonialism and, and even later, um, all of these ideas um, about gender, about class, about the history of the, of the region and so on, uh, were symbolized by having a beauty competition of women, but they were all always white. Or if they weren't totally white, they were almost white of highly mixed women. So that um, what, what uh, people expected to see were the, the, um, the uppermost ideas of, of feminine beauty as characterized really by members of the society which were or looked very, very European. And that was the ideal of, of beauty. Now, very slowly and really rather recently, those standards began to be changed and women who were not white or near white became uh, slowly became part, uh, took part in, in, in this competition. And uh, I don't quite recall the, the, the year, but when, when one of the queens from Trinidad actually won an international competition and she was a black woman. Um, so uh, this is, this chapter really is a, is a, bitty, a, a bit of history of, of how this JC's competition set the standard and how very, very slowly that standard began changing. So I'll add a little bit to that. Uh, the very first woman was Janelle Penny Comis Young from Trinidad, yeah. and she won Miss Universe uh, in the uh, 80s. Is it 70s? What year? <laughs> I have to look that up on Google. I'm never good with years. Yeah. Uh, but I th I'd echo what Professor Henry is saying uh, about beauty ideals uh, for black women and aesthetics about black women. And so I also want to contextualize the whole idea of the, the beauty contest in the Caribbean as being not only around carnival JCs, but it, it's it's sort of a historical uh, competition for women that uh, pervades various time periods in the Caribbean. And so, to be considered as the most beautiful on the island uh, in a in a contest really is uh, something we still wrangle with now, even in North America. I mean, the Miss Universe pageant is still existent. Uh, you have Miss USA. I mean, these pageants are still around, and I I like to always contextualize those in the in the in the sense that Historically speaking, if women's mobility was really determined by their attractive quotient, how attractive were they to the society, society's ideals? And unfortunately, we lived in such a society that women's aspirational goals oftentimes didn't meet with their opportunity, opportunities accorded to them. So even if you aspired to be um, a professional person, historically speaking, as a woman, you could often be blocked through systemic and institutionalized practices that are anti-gender for that particular position. So in societies where this, this kind of blockage exists for women, 
the message goes out to the young girls fairly early in their lives that in order to be successful, in order to be noticed, in order to be desired, in order to be successful in a society, the quotient which you can compete in is really about your physical attractiveness. So yeah. throw out the idea that you could become a doctor, throw out the idea you could become a successful lawyer, historically speaking, embrace the idea that you're only going to be known for how attractive you are to men in the society. And so these competitions then, especially the one around carnival time, really becomes that space, the very limited space for women to actually uh, find themselves um, celebrated as being um, desired, being attractive. And so brown-skinned women, light-skinned women, women with European features, a narrow, narrow nose, uh, straight hair, um, light eyes, uh, all became ideals for young uh, women in Caribbean society to try to um, become. Um, other countries that border Trinidad, um, that this is still very much uh, existing is Venezuela. I don't know if you ever followed Venezuela or Colombia. These are societies that actually influence the Caribbean quite a bit. And if you think about their histories, they also have this notion of women's uh, mobility coming through their attractive quotient. And so just want to yes. contextualize it a little bit. Yeah. Of course. So chapter five tells us about uh, the transmission of bad behavior as a strategy of survival. And for anybody who might not know, uh, what is whining or rolling it? And how does the author connect it here to individual and collective identities in Trinidad? Well, Dwayne, I think you better. <laughs> well, again. Basically, it, yeah. uh, as she says, or whining, it's simply a movement of the pelvis. And it, it, it's, a, it's quite a sexualized movement. Um, but it, it, one of its um, endearing characteristics is that it has become uh, very much part of, of Caribbean dance, um, uh, the dance of ordinary people, in other words, not only within a carnival or within a, a dance hall kind of atmosphere. It is simply the way in which the pelvis rolls or the hips, if you will, roll. And um, you, as uh, Adana, the, the author, uh, has uh, sort of reminisced in her, of her own upbringing that young girls are taught how to do this. Um, and, and that's why it, it, it keeps on um, happening in dances in all kinds of social occasions um, at, at any time. Um, and her point is that playing it or whining is, is much, much more than a movement of the hips. Uh, it symbolizes its importance. It, it symbolizes the way in which the Caribbean woman's identity has changed. That this is not a, a dirty movement. It's not even basically a sexual movement. It is simply a movement. And that is, again, ties in with that the uh, evolution of the sense of self that has developed 
among uh, Caribbean um, women. Um, so I, I mean, it's 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 quite intriguing, and uh, I think this chapter more than uh, than a number of others, in my opinion, uh, demonstrates quite clearly how something as simple as a physical movement can become a measure of identity. And that is crucial to the sense of who a woman feels she is. I am going to just add a couple of uh, historical and personal reflections on this too. Um, I grew up in a Caribbean household and I know that having watched young children as they are in the presence of adults in a social setting, one of the ways in which the children are actually cajoled and encouraged is to dance to music while the, the group is in a big room, for example. If music is playing, affirmation is given and celebration is given to the child who, male or female, who gets up and just starts rolling, whining, um, showing rhythm to a heavy bass uh, sound. I know I did that and I know I've watched that happen even as of today. So I want us to think about that a little bit in the context of the difference between a Caribbean culture encouraging that to both women and women and, and, and men growing up from children, but also contrast that with European culture and growing up. Um, if you think about a European household, um, the idea of dancing and moving your hips and whining in certain ways uh, is actually tolerated to a certain age when they're children, yes. But by the time Europeans get to be about 14 or 15 years old, I would argue that they've actually lost the ability to actually capture that again. And so for many Europeans, it's hard for them to actually learn how to dance in time to music. And I only, I'm not trying to stereotype folks here, but I'm just suggesting to you with regards to the Caribbean culture, however, dancing in time or having a rhythmic movement to your body is something you're learning from the time you are a very young child and then celebrate it all the way through your life um, time. So I also want to contrast that with uh, young men. Uh, I, I, when you look at that, that particular ability to, to dance through the lens of maleness, it's also something that is socialized into young men, uh, especially young uh, European origin men, is that you don't do that. You don't, you don't move your hips. You don't you don't whine, you don't dance. Um, and it's very interesting when you, when you visit Carnival and you actually make that up with that in mind, you visit Carnival and you watch young European men who have now joined their, their Caribbean friends to celebrate Carnival. And there's sort of an awkwardness to it when they first arrive on the island that's kind of hard for them to kind of, you know, learn the dances because they've never had to do them in their lives. Yeah. Fast forward now to the present, um, uh, when they're now trying to do them and they're, let's, let's say, 17, 18, 20, 25, 30 years old, it kind of looks kind of, you know, contrived. So I want to just come back to the notion of dancing again to me. Dancing is really not only it's sexual, but it's also cultural. <clears throat> and so, the, the, you know, the chapter Adana writes, I think is brilliantly written, but it really has this notion of um, considering it from being a bad thing to do to actually it's something that sort of is celebrated and connects Caribbean people in ways that um, is very unique. And again, if you want to think about this in the bigger picture, the more assimilated a young Caribbean person is to the dominant culture, 
the less they're able to do that whining naturally. And so it becomes kind of awkward. They kind of stand on the corner in, the, in a room and they don't know what to do if they're really socialized within a, a non-Caribbean culture, although they might be of Caribbean origin. They feel very odd in those places, in spaces where other people are just doing it so naturally. Yeah, I particularly identified with this uh, chapter because not only I'm Brazilian, I'm Baiana. So the way I move my body or the way people expect me to move my body is, is a part of my identity, especially since I've been living like half of my life outside of Bahia. But there are expectations about how, you know, somebody from Bahia moves. And I, so yes, movement being part of our identity, that was something uh, that was really interesting to me and that I could uh, really identify with. So if but I could just add to that a little bit, if I could sorry. just add to that a little bit too, um, the idea of forgetting how to do something. And I watch this quite often. I live in a place that's very, uh, very white. I live in Oregon, which is uh, 85% uh, white Europeans live in on the West Coast. And it's a very undiverse state. So when I actually watch some of my colleagues who are African-American or who are um, people of color who've come to live in the Pacific Northwest, over time, you watch them and they become more awkward as time goes along. Even though they may have come from cultures that are very, very rhythmic and very, very into movement, you, you can unlearn this stuff too because you start to think that it's actually not a good thing to do. And I've certainly yeah. watched that. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. So next we look at a women's prolific presence in the Trinidad Carnival, but the, the chapter also points out the inequality in terms of representation. So who is being represented and what are the implications of this representation? Well, I think this chapter really what it's trying to do is to um, sort of bring in an economic factor uh, that, that, that the market essentially is still dominated by uh, or is still strongly influenced by European standards rather than, than by um, local standards. And, and, and I think to, this is, a, I think, a difficult argument to make. Um, and, and that's why the chapter is, um, I think it, it, it can, it's a, can be a little bit confusing. But if you think of it in terms of brands, and, and that's what she was trying to bring out, um, that the brands that are celebrated through Carnival and elsewhere are still um, sort of mocked by Europeanists rather than locality. I'm going to also add to that a little bit and just talk about the idea of the, the Victoria's Secret kind of brand, as Professor Henry is um, uh, talking about. And if you think about that particular brand of Victoria's Secret and this whole notion of angels and the highly sexualized way in which um, that brand, uh, away from the Caribbean, has been marketed, Women who, uh, some women who uh, who join some of these bands that actually have what we often refer to as frontliners. These are women who are um, either have a costume that's subsidized, or that they actually will, are willing to pay several thousand dollars for a, for a particular costume that is a variation of the regular costume that other women are wearing in the same section. 
And these other costumes are actually um, highly blinged out. And so they have extra feathers, extra pieces on them. However, the actual costume that the woman will be wearing is actually actually very much shrunk down. So it's a very, very much uh, almost like a, a lingerie type of uh, lingerie type of costume built around a very elaborate um, feathers and beads and glittery things and headpieces and so forth. So as you mentioned, Isabel, you come from Brazil. And so I would also suggest that some of the influence from Brazil also permeates over into this particular aesthetic of the women who are wearing these costumes in mm -hmm. Trinidad. The difference, however, though, in Brazil, as I've noticed just in my peripheral, I've never been to Brazil, but I've noticed that these women in Brazil tend to ride or be on trucks or be, yes. they don't walk on the streets. Okay. Yeah. I think that's the biggest difference here. The women that I'm referring to uh, from Asha's uh, chapter uh, actually will be women walking physically on the streets. So they are touchable, meaning people can actually approach them. Whereas in Brazil, I've noticed these women are actually on trucks or on other kinds of um, places where they're not accessible except through your eyes. Your eyes can see them, but your hands can't touch them. We have and both. And so I think, oh, you have both. Okay. Sorry. Yes. Okay. You have both. Okay. <laughs> Um, again, having not gone to Brazil, <laughs> there, there's my stereotype. <clears throat> so in the context though of, of Trinidad now, it is also a society that's highly influenced by Western media and Western ideals. And so the idea of a woman in Trinidad wanting to wear this type of costume, sure she can do it, but then she also has to achieve what we often refer to as the carnival body quote unquote, in order to play that cost, play in that costume. So yes, you can find uh, all shapes and sizes of women who will pay the extra to be in those costumes. But oftentimes the band leaders will actually self-select women who will play in these special sections. Uh, again, uh, self-selection is often based on uh, an aesthetic idea already, what these women should look like have very European features, uh, have long hair, have, you know, aquiline, um, uh, chiseled noses, often looking more uh, mixed than non-mixed, and oftentimes more European than non-European. And so the spotlight for these women then becomes the, this stage, quote unquote, which is the road, which they can, they can play on in, in their sort of very um, skimpy, highly sexualized costume. And as I've referred to before, they're playing in a band that has a theme, but these costumes that they come out with for these particular um, set of women who will play in this particular se sections have nothing to do with that theme at all. They're just elaborated, elaborate um, bikini beads, um, looking very much more like lingerie, looking very much more like um, something that's highly sexual. And in addition to that, I just want to point out one last thing about their feet. These women will also be encouraged to wear very high uh, heels. And again, I want you to think about that in the context of being in the hot sun, uh, uh, literally jumping, marching, whining, etc., for miles on hard asphalt in the hot sun. So that's really torture if you ask me. <laughs> it's not really that comfortable to be wearing that costume. A, you're highly exposed, B, you're walking on in shoes that uh, should not be used for that kind of level of walking, and C, you're now also finding yourself constantly worried about what you look like. 
right? So there's this constant fear of you not looking to play this particular part that you want to play with the highly uh, attractive Europeanized body with, um, with uh, you know, that, that sort of attracts uh, everybody to watch you, see you. So you're constantly under a fishbowl. And I'll leave it at mm-hmm. that. Yes. Uh, chapter seven focuses on East, the East Indian population in Trinidad and especially how women define and neg- negotiate their Indo-Caribbean femininity. And what role does Carnival play in that process? Well, I don't think it... Uh, I think that modern Indian women in Trinidad are... Um, are influenced by by the uh, African-derived carnival, um, the historical carnival, and so on. I mean, though there cross influences in this very diverse society, um, and one often has the impression that you know there are two populations, and and they they are sharply against and compete. Uh, with each other to a, a certain extent that's true but what one misses in that interpretation is the fact that they've lived in close harmony for uh, many many years and of course they have shared cultural characteristics so it is no surprise that Indian women uh, who come out of a, a particular uh, tradition a Devi tradition Uh, are slowly getting influenced by what they see around them, uh, particularly in in terms of of popular music like soca and and the like. So this is, um, we we thought it would be quite useful when we put this book together to have at least one uh, section of it devoted to uh, the um, East, what are called East Indian population in Trinidad. And the way their young women are also uh, not only being influenced by what they see uh, and hear around them, but that their own individual agency is also being increased. So they're part of that general process of women coming into their own. I'm going to add to that also by talking a little bit about the dichotomy between rural versus urban Trinidad. And so in rural Trinidad, you still have a large uh, proportion of uh, Indo-Caribbean people living. Uh, Whereas in urban Trinidad, which would be the city of Port of Spain and San Fernando and so forth, you'll have a disproportional number of African um, Caribbean people living. And of course, within Trinidad, you also have a very large number of mixed ethnic uh, Caribbean people, which could be mixtures of Indian and African um, and various other ethnic groups that arrived in the Caribbean. And I want to contrast that only because I think that this becomes the space by which rural Indo-Caribbean people look to the cities when some of this stuff is going on called carnival. They don't necessarily actually participate in the city carnival, but they may hold their own carnival celebrations in the rural areas. And so over time, there's been a sort of uh, learning about what carnival means and a, miscegenation, uh, and, a, and a miscegenation of carnival from the African traditions with the Indo, uh, 
uh, Indo celebrations. And out of that emerged something called chutney music. And so chutney music is sort of a blend of Hindi music and a blend of soca music put together to be this hybrid of music that really starts to capture uh, a, a different sort of Indian culture that's coming out of that rural um, history of Indians being put in rural areas as, as indentured workers and having to sort of stay in those places, in a sense, working the work in the rural areas. And they maintained a sort of very conservative, let's call it conservative, set of Hindi values and Hindi um, ways of being and doing things in their in their communities. Juxtapose that with Indians who have now gone into the cities and moved back and forth between the country and the city areas. Um, uh, and this has now been going on for, you know, uh, uh, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years of movement between rural and urban areas. And you need to also consider that Trinidad is not a huge island. It's a very small micro micro state. And so movement between those places takes place on a, you know, on a daily basis, sometimes on a weekly basis. But the point being that the, the Indians who went to live in cities sort of had more freedom and freedom can be all sorts of different freedoms that could include sexual freedoms. It could include freedoms to pick and choose what aspects of the Hindi culture you want to hold on to, which you don't want to hold on to. And they almost became almost um, uh, sort of multi-ethnic people by moving between those two spaces. And so you've got a sort of a um, tension that goes on now within Indian communities in the rural areas. And the tension becomes young Indian women in particular are aspiring to have more freedoms in their society. Young Indian men in those same places also want to have more control over women in these spaces where they see women uh, becoming, let's call them more feminist. And I'm going to use that word in quotation marks because they're not, they're not adhering to the so-called traditional Hindi values. And so that's where the clash comes in. And, and so um, when, you know, uh, you think about music, and Daryl Brakash sort of writes about music as that now that clash and where it's starting to take place is you actually have Indian women who are actually now singing Calypso. They're singing Soka. There's, there's been Indian women always in the venue now since the last 50 years of actually coming out and being participants in carnival in ways that one would not have imagined um, previously. And so now women entering the, the competition of soca and women actually singing next to major artists like Marshall Montano, um, uh, Destra sings next to him, and others, Drupati sings next to him, and others. Um, this becomes a role model for young Indian women, and it becomes a clash in Indian households um, for tradition versus um, uh, sort of more worldly kind of ways of looking at the uh, at life. So I think it's a really good chapter. I think that uh, people should enjoy this one because it's one of the first ones that sort of talks about how Indo-Caribbean women break out of those molds of, of traditional Indian culture and the restrictions that often uh, have existed. And Daryl has also started to now start to work on a lot more about men because there's a whole... Uh, there's a whole culture of man manliness within Indian men uh, in this whole notion of the music of chutney mm -hmm. that involves a lot of drinking, a lot of highly violent masculine um, 
um, episodes when people go to uh, Chutney music con uh, concerts, etc. And that's part of that's coming out as a backlash against women, in my opinion, where women are clearly starting to emerge as um, independent individuals, not dependent on men. And I'll leave it at that. Speaking of folks who are navigating different identities and cultures, the book concludes with uh, Dwayne talking, uh, taking us to the diaspora by looking at women's participation in the Caribana Festival in Toronto. So how is that celebration similar and different from the one in Trinidad, especially in terms of women's participation? Sure, I can talk about, I can start talking about that. Um, so the chapter I wrote really was based on many, many years of me being a participant in the, in the, in the mass camp in Toronto. And the mass camp is a place where people come together about a month before the actual road jump up and they build the costumes. And so in this particular mass camp I've been part of, it's called Saldina, uh, Louis Saldina's mass camp. And Louis Saldina has been around for, his his father has been around even before him, but he has carried on the tradition. They've been around now for almost 50 years of, of carnival mass making. So in going to that into that space year after year, what I've noticed was that women have clearly been the individuals who have been the makers of most of these costumes. In other words, they put them together, they sew the beads on, they put together, they glue the feathers together, and they, they, they have, they have, been at the forefront of bringing out the carnival for in, in Toronto in particular, and also in Trinidad before that. Um, and so, but they've often been the workers behind the scenes. Men have typically been the leaders of these carnival bands in terms of the, the front people, but just behind each man, you can often find a woman doing all the organization and all the bookkeeping and all the ways in which the band actually survives year after year. And so what I was interested in looking at is how these women have transitioned um, in these mass camps to begin with, um, from being individuals who are look like they're just playing a peripheral part to individuals who are now becoming uh, section leaders or becoming people who are in charge of the administration of the, of the band itself and women who are playing oftentimes the most major roles. So again, I don't want to diminish men, but I'm just saying, suggesting to you that the men are clearly there also. But they're oftentimes, uh, what we often talk about in Trina, they're, they're liming. And liming just means that they're hanging around, they're taking all the credit for it, but oftentimes they're often uh, not necessarily the ones who are pulling off the big part of the show. Um, carrying that a little bit further, I then carry on that chapter to look at the ways in which who is now playing mass in these bands in Toronto. So again, I've seen a major shift that's taken place, historically speaking, and this shift parallels Trinidad directly. And the shift really has become that women have become the most dominant people in the bands themselves. The women are the most uh, predominant masqueraders on the streets. Now, don't get me wrong, women, men are still on the streets, but they're often not in costume. They're, they're lining the sidelines, uh, watching the parade, and, and eventually... As it gets darker and darker, the men will then jump into the bands too and start, um, you know, dancing and whining and all that kind of stuff too. But the women, though, in the early part of the day, in both Trinidad and in Toronto, are the ones who are actually the ones in costume parading on the streets, whining and dancing. 
And there is oftentimes a small number of men per section. So let's look at the ratio about 80% women, 20% men in a typical carnival band today. Now, again, I want you to think about that in the reverse. If you go back historically, the reverse was the case. Most bands are made up about 80% men and maybe 10 or 20% women. So that's been a major shift. Um, and I also want you to think about, too, the types of costumes, as we've referenced a few times now. Uh, the costuming has certainly changed. Um, women are clearly um, helping to push the design of these costumes, push the, um, the ways in which they, uh, the, the costume makers will actually um, fabrics they'll use and the kinds of um, beads and feathers su such that the costumes themselves now are becoming very, very um, skimpier, but they're also getting, becoming much more expensive to produce because they're, they're more labor intensive. Uh, in the past, a costume could be put together quite easily by a seamstress. And this was actually the way it used to happen. Um, a masquerader would be given the, the raw materials and he or she would then have to go and make their costume uh, using a seamstress to build the pants, uh, to build the shirt, et cetera, et cetera. But today now, it's become much more of a uh, commercialized endeavor. There's been uh, some bands who have actually gone as far as going to China and having part of their costumes made in China and then adding to the, the, the costumes once they arrive in, the Carib in Toronto or in Trinidad, um, adding extra beads, adding extra glitter, and personalizing the costume a little bit more. So overall, though, I just wanted to just comment and say that the role for women has definitely increased in Toronto and Trinidad, both as masqueraders and as um, section leaders, as band leaders. Um, uh, but overall, unfortunately, um, women are still often overlooked as these key roles, and they're often seen as just peripheral to, um, to the mass itself. But yet, they become the most important. Yes. Yeah, so to conclude our interview, uh, can you tell us uh, what are you both working on now? So my work right now is going to look at um, social media. And I've uh, been recently produced a paper on Facebook as a conduit for maintaining transnational families and maintaining transnational relationships between individuals. So it fits right into what we're talking about here um, in the context that... Um, Interestingly enough, when people actually go to choose their carnival costumes now, they actually do it completely now by the internet, both people living in Trinidad and also people living outside. So there's a whole ritual by which people actually share photos, uh, they share um, websites, and this has become a much more commercialized effort uh, of uh, producing bands where you can go on a website, You can anybody in this radio program can do this, you can Google um, uh, Bliss, you can Google... Um, um, uh, hearts band. I mean, any band in Trinidad, you can Google them. They all have sophisticated websites. You can click on the costume you want. You can click on additives. You can basically buy your entire costume online, arrive in Trinidad, uh, a day before carnival, go and pick up your costume and you can be in the band. So there's a real disjuncture between now, uh, between being part of a band and just being a member of a commercial version of the bands themselves. So I'm working on that sort of thing right now. I'm also involved with um, some projects that deal with um, the STEM fields. I'm, I'm working with uh, some colleagues to look at um, uh, uh, barriers within the STEM fields for women and people of color. So those are really two big projects I'm working on right now.
Thank you both so much for taking the time to talk to me. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of New Books and Celebration Studies, a brand new series from the New Books Network. So subscribe to our channel if you would like to listen to more interviews on this topic. I just spoke to Dr. Francis Henry and Dr. Dwayne Plaza, the editors of Carnival is Woman, Feminism and Performance in Caribbean Mass, which was published by the University Press of Mississippi in 2019. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time.